This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by Mark Lemos, who is directing L.A. Opera's current run of Verdi's Rigoletto. There is such forceful mastery of the form, and with Rigoletto, particularly such economy, you know, and the only other masterpiece writer who has that kind of economy is Shakespeare, frankly. Lemos and I will talk about finding the complexities and the subtleties in Verdi's characters, Lemos's own dramatic philosophies, and his journey from studying violin performance to becoming an actor and then directing. thought I would start actually by asking you, when's the last time you played violin? Aha! Shortly after I graduated from Northwestern in, um, I think, 1969. <laughs> Maybe I did it for another year or so, but uh, I was. it was really a decisive break to go from music into theater. And, um, and I'd been studying the fiddle for really since I was in third grade, and I, was, I entered Northwestern on a, on a scholarship in violin. And, you know, you get to a point, any musician will know this, um, that you get too good to just put it down and pick it up again. You know, it, it really takes daily, it took for me a daily hour or two or more of real practice. And, you know, even when I'd go on a vacation um, a week away from the fiddle, it would be such a struggle to get all the little muscles back. Um, and I just, I couldn't please myself. You know, I my my standards for my own playing were too high. And so after about a year, I I put it down and gave it up. I still have moments where I feel like I'd love to be playing the violin again, but it's like a smoker, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Was that decision difficult? Was it um, fraught with emotion? Was it uh, a natural process that you said, I'm I'm ready to put it down and, and move to something else? It was a startling moment. Here's what happened. I was playing in the Northwestern Orchestra, student orchestra, and um, I was a junior, undergraduate, and an unprecedented thing happened. I was actually offered a role in the School of Speech. I didn't have to audition for it. The, the, the professor said, we are going to hold auditions, but I want you to play this part, and it was a great bravura role. And I thought, oh my God, I'm dying to play this part. And I'm at... I go to the conductor of the orchestra because one of the performances of the play is going to conflict with one performance of the the orchestra in the pit for an opera. And I said, Maestro, could you possibly let me out of the pit for um, this one performance? I have this chance of a lifetime. And he just took me apart. He was Italian. He had an incredible temper. And he just took me apart. He said, you need to decide what the hell you're going to do with your life. Are you going to be a violinist or are you going to be something else? Because this is where you choose. He said, I, I can't let you go. I'm not letting you go. So if you want to play that part, you will quit the music school and you'll go and play that part. Otherwise, don't come to see me again and don't come to another rehearsal. And it absolutely took my breath away. And I walked straight to the uh, student housing I was living in with about five or six other guys. It was like a rooming house. I put a dime in the, cell, in, the, uh, in the payphone. I called my parents, and I said, I'm leaving the School of Music, and I'm going to 
I'm going to become an actor. And it was absolutely one of the most powerful things that ever happened to me because I knew at last that this was right. Hmm. And I knew it was going to be very emotionally harmful to my parents who'd spent so much time and effort and love. And my mother was a musician herself who had to give up a career as a pianist when she married my father during the war, etc. You know, so there was a lot of that tied up in me becoming a success as a fiddler. And I only loved chamber music, which is about as close to theater as you can get. It's a conversation, right? You know, I loved playing sextets, trios, quartets with friends and never enjoyed being in an orchestra, really. I was always terrified in recital. I was terrified. My hands would shake. I was never terrified on stage. I, I was never frightened in front of an audience acting a part. I was quite the opposite. I felt like I had found my reality somehow. Mm. And um, so it, I knew it was the right decision, but it was very, very painful for my parents, my mother in particular. Isn't that interesting how it's a stage, you're just doing something different on it, and in one role you feel just absolutely yourself and comfortable and like you have a, a connection with the audience, and in the other role it's fish out of water in a way. Yes, yes. You know, since um, since then, of course, I love violin repertoire. I listen to where I listen to it all the time. Um, I have a lot of a lot of recordings, but I've come to realize, learn that people like Ruggiero Ricci, the great violinist who I saw when I was a boy at Grant Park and Michael Rabin were extraordinarily unhappy hmm. violinists. They hated it. They were frightened of it. They, Rabin's prodigy was his bete noir, really. Um, and Ricci, though he had a long career, was never a happy man, given this gift that he had, you know. So it's been interesting to see that as an adult. Were you always uh, drawn to the stage as a, as a young boy, or did that happen, you know, so you were offered that role while you were at Northwestern. Obviously, you were acting at that point. Sure. Yeah, I was acting all the time I was there. I would squeeze it into my music schedule as much as I could. And I was quite resented by the students in the School of Speech because I was getting these roles, but I wasn't a speech student. <laughs> you know, I learned so much, and I took every elective I possibly could in the School of Speech. But I, I loved acting ever since the fourth grade. I, I remember auditioning for a part, playing an elf in the this, in this school uh, operetta Snow White, you know. And then in the fifth grade, I played Jack in Jack and the Beanstalk, and that was it. That was absolutely it. I was, I was there, you know. I loved the world of the stage. I loved being on the stage surrounded by other people, and these were fifth graders, mind you, who were being... Pirates and sailors and I don't know what, we all were, boys and girls together, you know. But I remember it was just as high as you could possibly be. And generally, I've found that most people who went into the theater had that moment, whether they ended up being administrators or producers or what have you, playwrights. They initially experienced some kind of high like that. And I think musicians do, people who are really made meant to be musicians, they have that same experience in some way or other. The transition from acting to directing, was that something that was also just sort of a, a seamless, natural uh, process for you? Or was there like a, a moment where you said, all right, I kind of want to do less acting and I really want to get more into the creation of, of the whole show? 
It happened almost by chance. I was asked to direct something at the Guthrie where I was an actor in the company. It was a small Ethel Fugard play, very dense. And I thought, oh, I'll do that. That'll be fun to do. And I realized that I hadn't much respect for directors as an actor. <laughs> and um, It's like musicians with conductors, yeah. maybe. <laughs> it sounds similar, doesn't it? <laughs> and I suddenly, being in the shoes of a director, I, I gained a lot of respect. And I was working with two very fine actors. They were veteran actors in the company. And, um, but I didn't think that that would be my life, directing. Hmm. And then just one or two other things came along almost serendipitously, and I realized how much I liked it, and I realized how much I was kind of no longer interested in being in front of people and no longer interested in the very self-centeredness required to be an actor, and I don't mean that in any pejorative way. You have to be absolutely so inward, and you have to protect your egocentricity so much so that because that's all you have to use. It's where all the ingredients are that will make the cake that is the role. The way you observe other people, the way you think about a part, the way you think about yourself, your looks, your voice, your hair, your everything, your body. All of that is just so self-involved and it has to be. It just has to be. And suddenly directing, I could be in the dark. I could be working on many other levels of my interests. I could be, I, I was always very, very into art. I painted. I loved that. I was a huge art lover. I was able to, you know, we lived in Chicago, so I was at the Chicago Art Institute all the time. I really loved modern art very much as a kid. Um, there was music. There was opera that I always loved. All of a sudden, a lot of things came into play, along with a certain talent that I began to develop, I didn't have very much of it at first, uh, pedagogy of dramaturgy, but then also psychoanalyzing actors, helping them achieve breakthroughs, leading a company as a director, pulling back from that energy so that it's theirs instead of yours. When you finally get the curtain goes up and there's an audience, it's a big psychological ride, and I realized that I had what it took to, to do that. I failed many times, <laughs> but on the whole, I realized I was succeeding, and that was validated in the press, but also in the work that I was given. It started when I was, uh, I was doing a Broadway play. Actually, it was a Shaw play, Man and Superman, and um, I had a very good role, featured role. And I remember actors in the company coming to me and saying, would you mind just watching the way I play this or that scene and telling me if I'm on track? We had a very fine director, Stephen Porter, who was a great Shavian director. And I said, as actors do with each other, you know, you say, okay, yeah, I'll watch, you know. And then I noticed that they, they listened to what I had to say. And it seemed to change a little bit what they did. And I thought, well, this is interesting, you know, um, I think I do have a talent for this in some way. Hmm. I'm sure you could find hundreds of actors that would disagree with that. <laughs> but but that's kind of that that also validated the yeah. move into directing in a funny way. But thinking about it in the the musical world, I mean there are people who are phenomenal 
teachers or coaches, and they are not necessarily performers themselves. And they, you know, their career exists to draw that art out from someone who they see potential in. I see parallels, obviously, with with directing to to the the one on one music teacher in a way. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's very much there. Yeah. You know, you also I find myself saying to certain actors, they're usually quite young. I'm not an acting coach. I'm a director. James Conlon isn't an oboe teacher. He's a conductor. <laughs> so if you don't know how to find a way to locate this moment for yourself as a sheer acting exercise, whether it needs to be tears or whether it needs to be something very spontaneous, if you don't know how to find have the technique to do that, we're going to have a serious problem because... I said, I I was a musician, and I work in opera, and if somebody can't sing the role, they're gone, you know. (laughs) So you need to have the technique to know what you're doing. So I don't so much teach as pull together various ideas from people. Uh, It's a very interesting and strange job directing because you, you have enormous ideas about where you want things to go, performances to head. But also, half the time, you're being inspired by an actor or a singer. And that inspiration leads you to say, wait a minute, what if you jumped on his back? Wait a minute, what if you fell down here? Gee, what if we played this moment as if you're having a heart attack? What if you, you know, because you see something in the performer or you hear something in the voice, you see something in the body that just triggers something. And I don't think actors always realize how much they are vessels of inspiration for directors, particularly directors like me, because mm-hmm. the older I get and the more the more I've done, the more I I think I I I trust myself enough and I trust the performers enough to know that we're going to work this out that way. You know, we're going to go down this path where neither of us is really in control, but the role is going to shape itself with the two of us kind of massaging the clay together. You know, it, it was very interesting. Yesterday, our Rigoletto, Juan Jesus Rodriguez, joined us after about a week of rehearsal, and we were putting him in. And I said, now look, I know you've done this role many times. And I said, I want you to know that I value that with singers in opera. And I and he just looked like I had just kissed him or something. He was so <laughs> grateful. And I said, look, you've learned so much playing this part. I've learned some things watching other singers do it and directing other singers, studying the score and listening to it. But you've studied the score and you've performed it. And I said, I've seen some of your work on YouTube in these performances. And believe me, you know, I think I think uh, a lot of the things I see you do, I would love to incorporate in your performance here if you're comfortable. And he was very grateful for that. But I feel that way. And, and you know, what makes this production very special is that not only has he played the role many times, but Lisette Oropesa has played Gilda many times. Arturo Chacon Cruz has played the Duke many times. They are superb together and apart, you know, and there's an ease between the three of them because they've all worked at it together and apart. And I love that because it just gives the rehearsal a whole other fullness. You feel the sails filling with everybody's wind. And there are a million ideas on the table, you know, and they're new to this production. I'm sure the second cast, it'll be different. And another kind of energy will emerge. But that's one of the great things about doing these great sort of classic masterpieces of opera. I never tire of it. I mean, I did a production of Butterfly for Glimmerglass many years ago. It was a big success. 
It went to City Opera. It was a big success there with another whole cast. It stayed in, of course, it stayed in the repertory for many years. And then that production was revived in various companies around the country. And as often as not, I would get asked to do it. And I always loved working on it, hmm. you know, because various singers would bring various things to it. And I knew it like the back of my hand. So I could, I could keep, I could keep burnishing the work. And it was tremendously fulfilling for me. Yeah. That is one of the subjects that I wanted to talk uh, about uh, with you because your career directing operas started with new work and you have done a lot of new work and also a lot of less familiar operas alongside the classics. And I'm curious how your approach is. Is there a difference in the approach to when it's a, a new work or something that is less well-known versus a, a, a classic like Butterfly or Rigoletto here? The classics, yes, it's very different. I think when it's a new work, you have the composer with you in the room. You have the composer, you've been working on the piece maybe for a few years before uh, it even gets to rehearsal. So, And because the singers are, are unfamiliar with a new work, I mean, they've learned the music, but... Uh, the real work sort of begins. There's not that seasoning that. like you're talking about no, in Rigoletto. No, and they're they're all new and quite wide-eyed about it. And <laughs> but the great thing about American singers is that they are known worldwide for being the best prepared on earth. They are, and I've worked with enough international singers and companies to to know that for a fact. I mean, they are this Warren and Opera I did for City Opera Haroon. After working on it for two years with Charles. I still couldn't hum two bars of it. And, um, I mean, I used to joke with him. I said, like, Charles, give me a tune here. Come on. <laughs> it's not the way I work, Lamus. <laughs> but the company, which was mostly quite young singers, had it down cold at the first music rehearsal. It was astonishing to watch them and listen to them. And, of course, you could practically do anything with them. Do somersaults while you're singing that. Do, you know, stand on your head. <laughs> But it is very different. Um, the two John Harbison pieces I've been fortunate enough to do, one very early on, Winter's Tale at San Francisco, and then Gatsby at the Met, um, and also at the Lyric in Chicago. They were unique experiences because we had, the singers loved the music so much, and there was so much support for them orchestrally. It was a very, very gratifying rehearsal period to go through and John was elated to hear his music sung that beautifully mm -hmm. by hand-picked singers you know yeah yeah when we approach the the work of Verdi here's a composer who was all about the drama and he doesn't mess around he doesn't give you moments in his operas that are meaningless, that don't serve the drama. Everything is in service of the drama. I would think that for a director, it would be incredibly satisfying to approach the work of Verdi for, for this reason. Well, you're in dressage, really. I mean, there is such forceful mastery of the form, and with Rigoletto particularly, such economy. You know, and the only other masterpiece writer who has that kind of economy is Shakespeare, frankly. Um, not even Mozart. Mozart works from a different place. Not a criticism, of course. But there is something about the way Rigoletto is forged into the music. The libretto and the music are perfectly matched. That's not always the case. Forza is kind of wobbly and plot-wise. I mean, Trovatore, good grief. Um, <laughs> you know, fabulous music, but oy, the plot. Here, the plot is riveting, 
and very upsetting and disturbing. The characters have depth. The music is relentless. You know, there are so many fascinating things about it. I have to admit, now this production has been done so many times, and all of us have done Rigoletto's, all of us in the room, you know, my assistant and the stage manager, and we were just yesterday, again, flabbergasted at the way Verdi makes it work so brilliantly and so quickly it turns on a dime, you know, towards horror, mistakes, revenge, all the things that make for a great tragic sequence in a drama. And it happens, it takes your breath away. It's so, it's so quick. I think Otello, we were talking about how brilliant that opera is, and of course Falstaff, the two last operas, but where you have these large plays that he's pulled down into exactly what is needed and what is needed for him to make the musical ideas that he wants to make happen, happen. And there are many people who feel uh, that Otello is greater than Othello. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm, I, it's like apples and oranges. <laughs> right. but, but, my gosh, when you work on the play of Othello and you know the opera, you realize how he has just absolutely, it's like boiling something in a pot down to its essentials. And then it's essentials for the for the sung drama. Yeah. It's just genius. It's yeah. genius. Well, and he adored Shakespeare. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it feels like we, you know, we think about, I don't know, I come from the music world, so I, I'm, I think about Verdi as a composer, and then I have to sort of stop myself and say, like, yes, he, he composed music, but he was a dramatist. Absolutely. Completely a dramatist. And, you know, you read the letters, and they're all about, this isn't, this isn't powerful enough. This isn't quick enough. I need less fat here. Uh, I don't believe this. She would never say that. I mean, he, he knew exactly what he wanted as a dramatist. And all those, you know, the, the so-called galley years of Verdi, where he was, you know, doing opera after opera after opera of various, you know, various degrees of success. Um, but when you listen to them now and you read the libretti, uh, you can you can... You can smirk if you want. I don't, because basically he's forged a path down through the the material that he's 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 wanting to deal with, and the music is always attempting in those early operas to serve the drama, and the drama's always finding its way through the music. That's mm-hmm. what's so thrilling. Yeah. Is there more to the Duke than than it appears? Is that is is he a more complex character than than he seems, or is he really just kind of, you know, a a party animal. One of the great things about the role is that, like Hitchcock's characters, we are implicated by him. We're implicated in his joy. He has the most joyous music in the opera. It's all the hits. And yet he's a serial rapist. He is a liar. Yet every time he's on stage, we are meant to enjoy him, root for him. You know, it's very interesting how that character is placed in front of us. And the kind of music that Verdi has given him is it's a shockingly brilliant choice. That said, there are lots of strange things that run through that man's bones. And in some ways, he's like Don Giovanni in that every woman he meets he must love 
before he discards. So there is definite love there. You can't sing that music and have it not be about love in the duet. At the same time, the minute he's away from her, that's not there. Somebody else is. Soprano's wife, someone, you know. And Arturo has found a lot of, you know, he said he's found a lot of sort of complex things over the years he's been singing the role. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked about them a lot because I think they're all very, very valid, that he overreacts to things. He feels like a victim. He has to have mastery. He has the range of a human being that can be desperately attracted to a Madalena or a Gilda. And they're both valid for him. But it's one of the great moments in opera when Gilda sees him in that quartet with Madalena saying, you know, I mean, being incredibly lascivious, but also singing some of the most glorious music in all of Italian opera, music as beautiful as anything in the duet with Gilda. It's just a shattering moment to watch. And it's brilliant that, she, that I almost said Shakespeare, <laughs> that Verdi lets her, her vocal line start so much later. Yeah. You know, she's just in shock. She can't sing. I would think that his character would be, you know, one of the more difficult roles to to approach mm -hmm. in this opera. Because, you know, on the one hand, there is more depth there. But I think maybe, correct me, you're the expert, but um, there might be a, a danger of, like, going too far and really trying to highlight those unknown depths of, in this character. And then you end up kind of ruining how he comes across. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, the the music keeps him, whoever plays the role, keeps him on a certain path mm -hmm. so that a lot of depth can't really be explored. It can be felt, but the audience picks him out immediately as a joyfully despicable guy, you know. And that is one of the most interesting things about this libretto. Well, as a fan of chamber music, how well uh, do you know or love or not love the Verdi String Quartet? <laughs> oh, I like it very much. Yeah. I do. I, I, I very much like it. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah. I just, I, it's one of those pieces that, you know, he, he said, I've written a string quartet. I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. I do know that it is a string quartet. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I have to say, every time I listen to it, I'm not sure either. Right. <laughs> But I like it. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, what else are you up to these days? Uh, obviously, Westport seems to be just absolutely uh, blossoming and, and doing really well. And uh, just the, the whole idea of regional theater, um, great theater in small towns across this country certainly must be a, I mean, you've built your career on on that opportunity for folks in small towns, not just the big cities, to, to have great access to, to great performances. Well, I mean, one of the great things about the arts in this country is that so many cities now have great theaters, you know. And I was very fortunate. I wanted very much to work when I was young at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. It had just formed, and I it was a dream. So when I was cast there, first in a show that went to Broadway, but then... I came back, I was invited to be in the company for four or five years. That was really the launch of my belief in the regional theater idea in this country. And I ran the Hartford stage for almost 17 seasons. And 
it's a massive and, and exciting opportunity for a director to be able to explore that kind of range of all kinds of plays, musicals, what have you, to develop a conversation with an audience, mm -hmm. to develop a conversation with a community. To win a Tony Award. Well, there's that. <laughs> there's I'll that. say it. <laughs> but I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very special kind of a job, and I'm very fortunate to have been able to do it for so long. Mm -hmm. I took about 10 to 12 years off and freelanced, mostly in opera, and found myself wanting to be back in a situation where partially because where I had more control over the kind of work I was going to be doing and I had more control over the kind of work that I could produce around me. And um, Westport is, is, we're lucky because we're just 50 minutes from the city, from New York. So we have access to such an enormous talent pool. And the theater has a long tradition of being a wonderful theater. So I've, I've sort of made my life, I guess, in the Connecticut Regional Theater <laughs> and with hops to off-Broadway and Broadway and then opera all over the place. It's yeah. been it's been uh, it's been good. But the great thing about regional theater is that it's it, it is everywhere and it is regional. Sometimes that's pejorative and yeah. I don't hear it that way at all. And it's the same with regional opera companies, which I know are struggling. We're struggling too, all of us, but um, they're there and there's a hunger for them. I see it. I feel it when I'm producing things. But what could uh, regional opera companies learn from regional theater? Because it feels like theater has more success than, than opera in smaller towns. Boy, I don't know. That's yeah. a really good question, Brian. That's a really good question. And I, I, I don't know what that would be. I don't know what that would be because we all, it's funny, though we talk to each other, you know, the theaters, and the problems are similar and the challenges are similar. The solutions are all quite different based on the geographies in some cases, based on the history of the theater, based on all kinds of things, luck in many ways. I don't know. I was doing a production of Carmen, and the Carmen was excellent. And we were at the dress rehearsal, and uh, I said, uh, she's the best Carmen I think I've had in this production. And he said, yeah, she's very good. And I said... Of course, my favorite Carmen was the one I knew as a little boy, which was Risa Stevens. And he said, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I said, and my partner's favorite is Leontine Price, because that was the first one he heard. And he said, you know what you're talking about, don't you? You're talking about my nemesis. Because he said, unlike you guys in regional theater, my audience can go out and hear any Carmen they want to before they come and see this production with this Carmen. And he said, it's a problem, I think, for all of us. And he's right, unless you're doing a new work. And as we all know, both in the theater and in opera, new work is not going to bring thousands of people flocking into the theaters yeah. either. So, uh, but there is this, There, I never thought of that before. And of course, I have a shelf full of Carmen's and I compare them. And I was comparing our leading lady to them too, you know. And I thought, he's right, the audience is as well, yeah. you know. So it's, it's uh, that may be one of the issues about opera that's tough, you know, if yeah. you can... If you can see an HD broadcast with three major stars from the Met, do you really want to go to, say, I don't know, Arizona Opera or St. Louis Opera and hear people you've never heard of sing these parts? Yeah. You know, and the answer should be, yeah, why not? But, yeah. you know. Oftentimes you're going to hear the next generation of, yeah. they're, they're going to be on that big screen eventually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Not a night of peace, like you, my 
Mark Lemos is the director for L.A. Opera's current run of Verdi's Rigoletto. Only two more performances, Thursday evening, May 31st, and Sunday afternoon, June 3rd. More information at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.